Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's just an honor to be with you. And uh, it's an honor to open God's word with you. I love your church. Our family loves your church. And... Uh, it's a little emotional to come back and be here, you know? And uh, for, um, our church loves your church. We love your pastor and, and his wife. And uh, my, my wife and I's relationship with Pastor Doug and Heron, uh, Karen goes back really 15 years. I think all the way back to 2003. And he, he's been a significant just mentor and a friend to me and to our family, and uh, you know, I can't wait to sit down with him over some unhealthy lunch in a few months when he returns, and, and just hear how the Lord has used this season of sabbatical, um, how the Lord Jesus has met him and, and Karen, and also to hear how this season of sabbatical, how the Lord has met you, church, and how God has used this for your sake and for the sake of the, his gospel, even while um, your pastor is away. I was, I was actually on um, sabbatical for just a couple months last summer, and, and I came back an entirely new person and uh, entirely revitalized for the work that God had given me to do as the pastor in Bloomington. And, uh, and I pray that it would be the same, I have prayed this week that it would be the same for you, that it would be the same for your pastor and his family. And everything uh, about the season of sabbatical was good. It was good for our family, it was good for our church. Um, and uh, for a lot of reasons. And may it be here, may it be so here, Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, for those of you who may not know me, uh, I'm just around here from time to time. And, uh, um, but what's really true is that our church wouldn't exist without your church. Our church family wouldn't exist without your church. Um, years, years ago, your church was a critical piece of our church family um, getting started. And I wanna commend you for having hearts to uh, plant and strengthen and multiply churches for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ because um, without you all, we wouldn't have the joy in Bloomington of watching young men move to Bloomington, Indiana to pursue their drug addiction and to meet the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be set free from it. We wouldn't have the privilege, we wouldn't have the privilege of watching students come to IU and, and live oftentimes uh, in every kind of immorality and move in and live together and be invited to church and meet the gospel of Jesus Christ and be powerfully converted by um, the richness of God's mercy, move out, pursue purity, grow as Christians, and then get gloriously married and begin a family. We wouldn't have 
the privilege of watching, even in Bloomington, those who are older finally being taught sound doctrine, or of young men being trained um, for pastoral ministry, or to see the joy of the sacrificial love that is Christian love excelling still more and more. And I wouldn't have a job. So there's that. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your um, prayers and encouragement all along the way from day one until now. I wanna invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 131 if you're not there already. I love the Psalms. My love this year for the Psalms has increased um, significantly. And one of the reasons that I love the Psalms is that these are, uh, there's, there's a song here. There's a prayer here for every single season of the Christian life. The Psalms don't leave any experience unstudied and, and when they are preached and when they are studied and when the Psalms are prayed and when the Psalms are sung, all that is the pilgrim's journey as a Christian is touched by who God is, what God has done and what he requires of us. Uh, John Calvin, regardless of what you think of him, made a wonderful, wonderful statement about the Psalms. He said, they're an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Do you love that? You go to school for anatomy. Where do you go to school for the anatomy of the soul? You go to the Psalms. And as the years go by, uh, each of these sacred songs becomes increasingly precious. The Psalms in your Bible, what you want them to become is like inspired journal entries where you write dates, where what you were experiencing with God and in life, um, where God met you there on that day or that morning or that late night, they become like inspired journal entries of, of triumph. They become inspired journal entries of trial, of lament and praise, of confusion even at times, of vexation. They become inspired journal entries of comfort and sometimes confession, of joy and of sorrow, of the help that only God can give in the midst of heartache. Most of all, they become worshipful songs and prayers for every Christian season. Let me illustrate that for you quickly. Do you feel forgotten? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Is your cup overflowing with blessing? About Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Is something awful happened? Psalm 44 laments, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Is there a longing for true justice in our world? Psalm five prays, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Maybe is there a need for a specific season of repentance and confession? Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you get the point? They're an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And so when you come to a psalm, one of the things you have to ask is, what is the part of the soul that this psalm is to speak into? What is the heart of this prayer and what is the heart of this song? And so when we come to Psalm 131 this morning, Psalm 131 is a prayer that is given to people and for people whose souls are noisy, whose souls are stormy, and whose souls are uncertain. And it's a fascinating prayer because it's a prayer that's often not like us. In fact, when we enter Psalm 131, we we find someone who uh, seems many times kind of unfamiliar, kind of foreign. See, when you peer into Psalm 131, as we'll read in a moment, you find someone who is calm. You find a precious saint who is composed and quiet. When you came to church this morning, were you characterized by calm and quiet? Calm and quiet. These are almost like words from a stranger in Psalm 131. But they're precious words. Isn't it true that oftentimes calm and quiet is something foreign to us? Just a few of you. I was not calm and quiet this week when our uh, family car, the one that we have that's reliable enough to make the, the trip from Bloomington to Indianapolis, uh, broke down too late in the week to get it to the mechanic to get fixed. So like a man, I spent seven hours trying to get two bolts loose You know, I just wanted to get here to serve you this morning. <laughs> it was like poo without a honey pot. <laughs> but in all seriousness, wouldn't you love to trade noisy? Wouldn't you love to trade stormy? When you love to trade uncertain for calm and quiet inside, do you think that would be an upgrade? The gift of the Lord Jesus and his gospel to his people? I wanna be careful here because uh, we are really good at taking the point that I just made and making it all about us. We're really good at preaching sermons that end up becoming all about us. And I want to protect us and kind of inoculate our consciences to the danger of hearing, well, that would be a good trade. And then end up using the Lord to try to get something that's really about you. But in Psalm 131, it's entirely not about us. As much as we will learn about ourselves, it's entirely not about us 
But what God loves in the calm and quiet soul is what it ends up saying about him. What it ends up saying about what he's done on behalf of his people. What it ends up saying about our own hearts as we know his faithful provision, as we know his satisfying presence, as we know his almighty power, and as we know his steadfast love that endures forever to those who fear him. And so, when your soul sounds like untrained children playing an orchestra, it's telling you something. It's telling you something. It's like, when uh, you hear noise in the distance. Maybe uh, music is playing and, and you're kind of like, what is that? Where is that coming from? What's happening? The noise that's going on in your soul. It's a, it's a map that if you would listen to it clearly would tell some things to you about what you believe and think about the Lord Jesus, about what you think and believe about yourself about how well you know yourself. And I just want you to know that the noise that's going on in there, before we walk into this, it may not all be good. It may not all be good. And it may tell you some things that are darker than you thought. But we're going there safely together, amen? Amen. And so what we want is to get to where King David, who wrote Psalm 131, uh, where he's at and what God wants for us here. We want what David knew of his God. We want what David knew of himself, that we might know David's God in the same way and that we might know ourselves in the same way. Uh, ultimately, that we might display who our God is and live with a calm and quiet soul. And so we wanna be able to say what David says here. This is the summary of the message. It's five true statements of the calm and quiet soul. Five true statements of the calm and quiet soul. So let's read Psalm 131 in its entirety and then I'll pray and then we'll jump into this a song of ascents of David. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh Father, what a precious prayer. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this precious prayer. May today in the hearts of your church, your beloved, your children, may these statements become ever more true. And may we find in who you are 
and may we find in moving away from all that makes us noisy, the gift that only a Christian can receive, calm and quiet. In Jesus' precious and able name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Psalm 131, it's the song of ascents. There are 15 of those. Psalm 120 to 134. Sung by the Hebrews when they would ascend the hill to Jerusalem on a festival day. It'd be like, this would be the song that the pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem would sing on like anniversary church Sunday. Okay, And so that's the idea here. And um, what do you do in the moment when you're singing, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And you know very well that it's entirely not true of you. See, when you read a psalm like this, do you ever find yourself reading a psalm and reading the statements of real humans and going, how could that ever be true? You know, when David like goes on and on about his righteousness? Or maybe I have calmed and quieted my soul. What do you, how do you, how do you enter that? And see, Psalm 131 has an obvious question. It's how could this ever be true? How could someone actually say these things? Who could honestly sing this to the Lord as a song? And what if Pastor Nick stood up this morning and said, all right, I want everybody to stand. We're gonna sing Psalm 131. And you stand and you sing Psalm 131. And you sing, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Right, raise your hand if you feel like you might feel a disconnect with those words. And so what do you do in a moment like that? To tell you the truth, I used to kind of despise words and statements in psalms like this, and then in the songs we would sing in church, I kind of used to just despise them. I think in a season of my life where I was far more aware of my sin than I had, be, had been previously, and I, I used to just think, I'm singing these words at church and they're never true. And because what sinners do is in their sin, like I do, we then think our problem is everybody's problem in the exact same way. I think no one could ever sing this. But I've learned a couple things. I wanna make a couple comments to you about that before we get into these statements of the calm and quiet soul. The first is, that's just a great simple moment for repentance. It's a great simple moment for repentance. In the gentleness and kindness of your Lord, in his gentle, often, lordship over your life, he even disciplines you just with a few words in a song and calls you back to himself and says, hey, what's going on? What have you forgotten as you came to church this morning? What do you need to remember about who your God is and what he's done for you at the cross of Jesus Christ? What are you so anxious about when it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, little flock? 
So sometimes it's a good moment for repentance. The second thing I wanna say about that, and we'll get to more of this in a moment, is Psalm 31 is possible for you. Psalm 131 is possible for you. How could anyone actually say this? Because it's actually possible for a saint of God to be able to say this. It's the inner life of a mature saint. And it's not just the inner life of King David, it's the inner life of the Lord Jesus. Calm, quiet, composed, confident. And as your elder brother, Jesus can teach you his inner life. And his inner life can be yours. So the obvious question, and here's five true statements of the calm and quiet soul. Here's the first one. I'm not full of self-trust. When King David says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Some translations say, my heart is not proud. First, by addressing, oh Lord, what he's saying is, he's saying, you are the one who's lifted up. And I'm not living my life as if I'm you. And that's really what pride is, right, isn't it? Seeing ourselves in a higher position than we ought to see ourselves. Isn't it placing trust in ourselves that elevates us above what's actually true of us? We think we have righteousness that merits the grace of God when we are nothing but pitiable, poor, and wretched worms, as Spurgeon used to say. We are dust returning to dust. We think highly of our successes and our proud ambitions in the workplace, thinking our strength is great and forgetting that a third of our day is to be spent in sleep. You can't even make it 24 hours awake, loved one. We think highly of our particular giftedness, which is why Romans 12, three warns us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think forgetting that the only reason you can do anything is by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit is the one who dispenses any skill or ability or passion you have. Psalm 8 asks God rightly, what is man that you are mindful of him? But the proud asks in his heart, well, what else would he be mindful of? Have you seen this? Pride is self-trust. Some commentators argue that, that uh, this is David writing it in regards to, to being anointed as king in the place of Saul. That he was, he was not looking for the position. He just kept tending the flocks. He, he wasn't coming along with his brothers fighting to put himself forward when Samuel was gonna anoint the next king. God exalted him. If you want a formula for a noisy soul, start, start jockeying for your self-advancement. Start the pursuit of how you can put yourself forward. You will never find calm and quiet there. David says essentially when he says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. What he's saying is, I'm not full of self-trust. And let me ask you this. 
is the noise in your soul in this season of life. Now get to know yourself better this morning, okay? Get to know yourself. Follow what the noise is teaching you. Ask the question, am I full of self-trust? Five true statements of the calm and quiet soul. I'm not full of self-trust. Secondly, this, I'm not looking down on others. You see what he says there in his prayer. He says, Lord, my eyes are not raised too high. I'm not looking down on others. Now, we oftentimes think that pride is something that just exists in our heart, but what uh, David teaches us here is pride is something that immediately moves from our hearts to others. And one of the quickest way pride moves from our hearts to others is in our eyes. And eyes that because they're now elevated, because of our high opinion of ourself, only have one direction that they can look, and that's down. Doesn't just exist privately within us. Haughty eyes, the eyes that look down on others and end up despising them, end up criticizing them, end up gossiping and slandering and every form of evil way and word to destroy. God tells us in Proverbs that he hates haughty eyes. It's probably why David was so concerned that at this stage of his life, he would say, my eyes are not raised too high. Chief reason that haughty eyes end up making your soul clang and bang and smash against all your thoughts is because God is opposed to the pride of haughty eyes. And God will never give calm and quiet in the place where the sin of haughty eyes rests. He won't let it go. He won't let your soul go on peacefully within. Raise myself, lower others, noisy soul. Raise myself, lower others, noisy soul. Church, we are not yet God's gift of humility to all people everywhere, are we? Jonathan Edwards, when he was 18 or 19, penned these words. And by the way, young people, do not underestimate what the grace of God can do with you as a teen. And parents, do not underestimate what the grace of God can do with your teens. Jonathan Edwards was 18 or 19 when he penned these words. This resolution resolved. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. That's the heart that says, my eyes are not raised too high. That's the heart that's not looking down on others. 
That's the heart well aware of itself. How much noise in your soul might be because you don't understand yourself like this. And you compare, 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 and then compete, 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 and then crush and crush and crush with haughty eyes. How much conflict in your living room and in your kitchen and maybe in your workplaces because you have haughty eyes. I mean, I know you can do your job way, you can do your job and your boss's job and your coworker's job better than all of them, uh, for sure, by yourself. But, but how much, really, how much conflict, how much noise and clanging in your soul is because your eyes are raised too high in your view of others? Teenagers, it's a particular temptation for your stage of life in your stage of life to have haughty eyes towards your parents. Someone once said, I don't know who, when children are young, they love their fathers. When they're teenagers, they judge their fathers. When they're adults, adult, sometimes they forgive their fathers. How else, brothers and sisters, but in practicing this Resolution, will we see ourselves as God sees us and will we be and gain the inner life of even the Lord Jesus? What is the noise? Why is it there? Is it some Christian snobbery? Christians can be such snobs, can't they? I've been a snob many times and I hate it. I want you to be able to leave and say that's it. That's the noise. But here's the question for you. Is there noise because my eyes are looking down on others? See, the statement of the calm and quiet soul is, I'm not looking down on others. Eyes are not raised too high. And that's where quiet comes. That's where quiet comes. Third statement is this I'm not trying the impossible. I'm not trying the impossible. It says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And then he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You were gonna summarize that, or if I was gonna summarize it, I'm not trying the impossible. I'm not trying what's too great for me. I'm not trying what's too marvelous and too beyond my domain, my ability. Pride is always attempting the impossible. Pride is always seeking to escape it's domain. Now, see this here. I think what David's really considering here is his humanity. For me. Too great, too marvelous for me. He's considering his own humanity. He's considering who he is and how God's made him. 
And as a human being, there are many things that are impossible for you. And noise is often the fruit of pursuing what's impossible for you. Humility recognizes what is impossible for you. And a large part of the work of your Christian life as you grow in humility is recognizing, no, I, I can't do that. No, that's, that's beyond me. No, I, I'm just a man. No, I'm, just, I'm just, a, just a mama trying to raise a few kiddos and that would be too much for me. I'm just a pastor in need of a sabbatical so I can get some rest and restored and be prepared for this race to be ran with endurance. Impossible things, if they occupy you, you'll be noisy. If a wife relentlessly seeks the change of her husband, it's always gonna be noise in the soul. If a friend seeks to convert his friend with ferocity, that's gonna be some noisy evangelism. If a graduate student, often full of anxious toil when they pursue a success and achievement that's too great and too marvelous for them, will always, always be noisy. If a youth thinks they're ready to carry the world's responsibility when they've hardly worked a job yet, it's gonna be noisy. Pastors and elders and churches think that the primary goal of the church is to sit around uh, committee tables and go, how can we make this thing grow? It's gonna be endless noise. Parents dominate their kids to make sure they behave at church perfectly because their behavior perfectly is really in your control. You're gonna be noisy. Or what about when uh, we manage our temptations and our sins and we manage all of our weaknesses rather than finding ways to cut avenues off to satisfy all of our sinful temptations and our soul is constantly noisy with uh, the world's appetite. Or maybe we work endless hours in the workplace or at home we think everything will be fine in our family until it's not fine and you will find noise that goes on forever. Just seek to live beyond the domain of just being one person. Person, one person. Calm and quiet comes to the precious saint who knows himself or herself. Here's a lighthearted one. Talking about trying the impossible. I try to do home improvement. Why does every home improvement project I take on feel like a big spanking? See, the calm and quiet comes to the saint who knows himself or herself just to be human. And beyond human, to be sinful. Who knows their limitations, sins, weaknesses, 
and who knows the limit of their own abilities. When the noise is clanging inside, ask yourself this question, am I trying the impossible? Am I pursuing right now in my heart with what I'm wanting something too great and too marvelous for me? If David, king of Israel, and in many ways a great king in Israel, had to stop himself short with his limitations and saying, I'm not gonna occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. How much most of us But if you're convinced you can fly and you start flapping your arms, you're gonna be tired really quickly. And all you're gonna hear is the noise of heavy breathing while you attempt the impossible. And that's what the soul's like when it pursues what's too great and too marvelous for itself. But here's the great thing. Here's the great thing. In verse two, David says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. Here's what David's saying, but I'm practicing self-mastery. I'm practicing self-mastery. I'm recognizing these things in my own heart and life. I'm recognizing the temptations to pride and the need of humility. And I've learned what the noise means. And I've seen the value of calm and quiet and composed and confident. And I'm looking to my God whom I call to, oh Lord I have calmed and quieted my soul. See, I love this because you can calm and quiet your soul. The composed soul is the product of self-mastery. Doesn't it bring hope that you can learn this? It'd be awful to hear a sermon on a calm and quiet soul and leave thinking, well, that's the impossible thing. But David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And you can learn this. And if you couldn't learn this, David would be a liar, right? And the Holy Spirit who inspired this song would be a liar, right? And all the saints who sang Psalm 131 for the last 3,000 years would have been lying to God as they sang it. And so you, you can learn the calm and quiet soul and it's gonna come through practicing self-mastery and part of this message is giving you some questions to start wrestling with in your heart that can help you with the process of no, I'm not going down that road. No, the Lord Jesus means too much for me to pursue that. No, I'm not actually gonna pursue this entire chaos of life and this bountiful amount of commitments that six people couldn't keep. And I'm not gonna toy with all of my sins and temptations. Or maybe you're here 
and you don't know the first thing about what it means to know Jesus and you came in and your soul's noisy because it's way down actually with the guilt of sin, sin before God. And the word that you need this morning is Jesus loves you and he entered the world and died on a cross carrying the penalty uh, for the sins in their place of all the sinners who will merely call upon his mercy and trust in him. And this is the beginning of the calm and quiet soul. You will never have it until your guilt is dealt with. And only Jesus is the one who can take care of it, starting with the practice of self-mastery that recognizes that God is holy and you are sinful and the thing you need most desperately is to be reconciled to him. So be reconciled to him. Be reconciled to him. I just wanna encourage you with this, that if this calm and quiet soul, if it was impossible, guess what? Sin wins. If it's impossible, sin wins. If it's impossible, grace is not superabounding power. If having a calm and quiet soul is impossible, then the first Adam in the garden wins over the second Adam in his resurrection at his cross work. But know that the power of grace, the power of grace over the power of sin and sin's pride is David's stones to the forehead of Goliath. You don't have to let your thoughts go down that road. You don't have to let your emotions just uh, trail down some path that only leads to disaster. You don't have to let your fears lead you down a path of rebellion against God. Your life doesn't have to be full of anxious toil. You can fill your soul up with truth about who your God is. You can fill your soul up with truth about the gospel you have received. And you could recognize that God is in heaven, in heaven always demanding more from you as, his, as if he expects more from you than just one person. I'm practicing self-mastery. Of course, David illustrates that with that precious picture of the calm of a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Right, how settled, how settled. How settled is the soul that's given up all worldly appetite. Able to sit calmly at the feet of Jesus, not rooting around, constantly trying to be satisfied and every worldly pursuit rejected is one less out of tune note within. And I calm and quiet my soul. Finally this, I'm hoping in the Lord forever. Oh Israel, Oh church, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever more. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about faith 
I've spent a lot of time thinking about love. I'm not as confident I've spent as much time thinking about hope. And yet, how precious is is hope? O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forevermore. We have have hope in our name. O Israel, look, we're the people of God here. We're the people of God here. What you worried about? We have hope in the Lord, the covenant Lord, the one who never leaves us nor forsakes us, the one who is walking with us by his spirit, the one who constantly comforts us with his gracious promises. Hope that we win with him. Hope that we will enjoy him and his people forever. Hope that all our enemies will be cut down. And it's hope in the Lord that brings calm and quiet. And we have hope forever. Hope is such an easy thing to abandon. Hope in the Lord is such an easy thing to abandon. Something presses on you a little bit and all of a sudden your hope goes elsewhere. Never abandon hope. Never abandon hope. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And your soul? It'll look more like that. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity just to peer into ourselves. Consider our ways. Oh Lord, help us to track down the noise and anything that's dark about it, anything that's proud about it. Father, turn our eyes away from this kind of pride. Help us to see ourselves as we ought to see ourselves. Merely people, merely sinners in need of a savior and the savior you are to us. Whatever's happening in life this morning, may it be so that we leave calmer and quieter, more composed and more confident because we're setting our our hope on the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And in his name we pray, amen.